1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Alicia Gutierrez Romine, an associate professor of history at La Sierra University, and we'll be discussing her new book, From the Back Alley to the Border, Criminal Abortion in California, 1920 to 1969, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Alicia. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Why don't we begin by just hearing a little bit about yourself. What is your academic background and what got you interested in history in the first place?
0: Okay, well, so I was always interested in in history. Um, I grew up hearing different stories from family members about um, different historical events. My grandpa was in the 2nd Armored Division in World War II, and so I remember that being a really important part of of growing up and different stories I was told. Um, When I was in college, I did my undergraduate at Cal State San Bernardino, um, California State University San Bernardino, and I was actually a double major with business administration and history. And it was probably after my first year. I took a business law class, and I decided I did not want to do business anymore. I actually thought I was going to open up a vegan restaurant, um, and I'm no longer a vegan, and I'm no longer interested in opening a restaurant. Uh, but I decided <laughs> to stick with. <laughs> I decided to stick with history, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with it at first. I just knew I really enjoyed it, and um, I decided to pursue graduate study. Um, after I went to a uh, – it was the CSU Student Research Competition. It was the California State University. They have a symposium for undergraduate students. And while I was there, I was um, bunking with this with this other student, and she was interested in grad school. And she was like, why are you doing this if you're not interested in, in getting a doctorate or at least a master's? And so after chatting with her, I, I just – it became something that I decided to do, and I did my doctoral study at the University of Southern California, and I completed my doctorate in history in 2016.
1: I love that story. And, uh you know, I, I know that you recently earned tenure, but let me just say that there's—it's never too late to to open a restaurant like that. And I think that there's pro- <laughs> there, there's probably a market out there for for a history themed vegan restaurant. So I don't know, maybe 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 keep that in your back pocket just in case.
0: Maybe they want to um, trust me because I'm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. So. Uh, what brought you to the topic of this book in particular? Why the history of abortion and specifically why the history of criminalized abortion in the 20th century in the American West?
0: So I kind of love that I always get asked this question because I actually never intended to write about abortion or criminal abortion or or really anything like that. Um, I was interested in medical history. And so when I was an undergraduate, I did my undergraduate research. I was also a Europeanist. I did my undergraduate research on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And I did a lot of, um, you know, seminar papers on Joseph Mengele, his medical experimentation, uh, which eventually brought me to the eugenics movement. So it was, medical history was something that that fascinated me. Um, I, I do have this kind of other interest in, in science and medicine. Uh, my mother was a, a nursing student for a lot of my upbringing. And so she would always kind of have these little things going on that she was studying and I would be her little helper to try to help her learn. So medicine, um, anatomy, all of those things, they were really something that, that was interesting to me. But as I did more research on particularly the German Nazi eugenics movement, I eventually understood that it had its origins in the American, particularly California, eugenics movement. And I decided that when I was going to um, work on my doctorate, uh, that I would look at the United States, I would look at U.S. history, and probably the American eugenics movement. And I started... With that. And then, as I did some of these undergraduate seminars, I got more training in California history and medicine. I ended up kind of shifting away from eugenics. And I thought I was going to do my doctoral dissertation on um, physicians of color in Southern California in the interwar years and what their experiences were like as physicians and what the experiences were like for their patients as they tried to provide them with care, sometimes in instances when there were no hospitals that were accessible to to people of color at the time. And so I was actually on my first research trip to the California State Archives trying to get this project off the ground when I ended up finding all of these documents that were talking about physicians getting their medical licenses revoked for performing illegal operations. And part of the reason that I, you know, came to these documents was because I had failed to ask the archivist for um, permission to access documents that were from the 1950s and 60s. And so they were still too recent uh, to access without permission. And so the archivist was just letting me look at, at documents that were old enough. And um, so as I realized, you know, illegal operation, I didn't really understand what that meant because I'm, you know, of an age where I'm naive enough to think that you get an operation because a physician tells you you need it, unless we're talking about like elective surgeries and things like that. But I still didn't really understand why people were getting their licenses revoked. And as I was kind of going through these documents, I I then realized that illegal operation was a euphemism for abortion. And then that just opened this whole Pandora's box of, oh, wow, you know, if Roe if Roe v. v. Wade was the case that said that abortions were legal, then I guess that means it was illegal before that. And what did that look like for women and providers? And so it was just kind of this little... Curiosity that was piqued inside. And by the end of my first day at the California State Archives, I found documents related to the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. And it was this, this black market coastwide syndicate that was headquartered in Los Angeles. And I was just so fascinated by this. And I did a very quick Google search. And the only reference to this that I found was a footnote in Leslie Reagan's book when abortion was a crime. And I was like, oh wow, like is, is this it? Like, do I do I have a dissertation topic? So I emailed one of my um doctoral advisors as I was leaving the archives and, and heading back to to my hotel. And I just asked him, you know, have you ever Heard of the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring. They were headquartered in LA and they provided abortions during the Great Depression. And he emailed me back before I'd even gotten back to my hotel. And he said, I have never heard of this. You need to find out everything that you can. And that really just kind of framed the rest of my week at the California State Archives. And I just figured the best dissertation was a finished dissertation. And I had all of these documents that were there in front of me. And I just decided to jump in
1: That's such an exciting feeling when you come across a story that uh, you think is interesting and then you find out that it is an undertold story and it presents an opportunity to you to tell that story for, for more people I just uh, I, I know that that feeling well and it's, it's a good one it's one of the, one of the the, the, the perks of a, a job like this
0: it is it just it allows you to have your curiosity and to get mm-hmm. those excited butterflies of, of yesing something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into the book a bit. And you start the story, you start the book in 1961 in Long Beach, California, uh, by talking about a woman named Eleanor McDonald. Um, And so I figured that might be a good way for us to to get into the book, since that's how you start the book itself. So what is her story? And what does it tell us about abortion in the pre-Roe years, in the mid-20th century in California and in the West?
0: Sure. So I began the book with this anecdote. Um, I wanted to start every chapter with either an anecdote or a quote or something along those lines to kind of frame what we were going to be talking about in that particular chapter. And so in the introduction, I began in 1961 uh, with a woman I call Eleanor McDonald. And um, it's basically this brief little anecdote about this woman who found out she was pregnant again. She was a waitress. She already had three other children uh, and she found out that she was pregnant again. And she decides that she's going to go to Tijuana and have an illegal abortion. And uh, she goes there with a friend. And even before she's returned home, she begins to feel ill and she goes to the hospital and she dies on the way, um, or she dies. that that day, and what was really striking to me about this particular story was that it's 1961. There are legal options for abortions in California at the time, but abortion is also illegal in Mexico. And so, what I guess piqued my my curiosity. What I wanted people to start thinking about was, you know, why would this woman go to Mexico? for an illegal abortion, if abortions were illegal in Mexico, and they were also somewhat illegal in California as well. So why would she choose to go to another country where they were entirely illegal, um, as opposed to trying to acquire one uh, in California where they had a semi-legal state? Now, at the time in, in California, abortion was something that it, it varied from, from person-to-person, procedure-to-procedure in terms of its legality. Um, you know, you could have instances where an abortion might be considered legal for one particular pregnancy in a woman, uh, but you might also have a situation where for another pregnancy, uh, an abortion would be illegal. And it really just depended on, you know, what other conditions the woman had, the 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 conditions of the pregnancy, whether there were concerns about fetal anomalies, rape or incest, and so abortion itself was a procedure that was not outright illegal. It was more that the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy determined whether abortions could legally be accessed for this individual pregnancy. And so, my the questions that I then had about Eleanor McDonald's, uh, you know pregnancy, abortion, and eventual death, or, you know, what were the circumstances that she was in that led her to believe that she could not access a legal abortion here in California, that instead decided to push her to crossing a national border and going to Mexico, uh, where they were also illegal, but because of this black market, but because of American tourism, because of ease of travel to these other places, there was a thriving black market on the other side of the border that even though abortions were illegal, they were still being provided to mostly American women at the time. And so why did she choose to go there instead of of talking to a physician in California? And so that was kind of the the framing question and what I thought would be kind of some of the, the main questions that I would be looking at in the book itself.
1: Well, let's go back further down down the chronological road to to see how we get to this point of of Eleanor McDonald's death. And let's go back earlier into the century. Um, In the first decades of the 20th century, what was the legal status of abortion in the United States? And what was the experience like for women seeking and receiving abortions at this time?
0: So... I focus mostly on uh California history. Um, and in the book, it is mostly a a California story that that we're talking about. I do talk a little bit about abortion in you know the border and a little bit in, in Washington and Oregon as well, but um it is mostly a, a California story. So the legal status of abortion in California varied at a few points in history, but it was overwhelmingly illegal. Um Basically, from statehood. So, in the 19th century, there were um, there were two different laws. So, one in 1850, one in 1872. Um, when we kind of moved from um, kind of the territorial government to an actual, you know, penal code in California. But 1850 version, 1872 version of the law were basically the same. It was that abortion was illegal um, unless it was a physician who provided the procedure who in the course of his or her treatment believed that abortion was necessary to protect a woman's life. So there's a few things going on that they are illegal um, unless it's a physician doing it. So physicians are not really being held responsible um, if you know, a woman dies, or there's not really an attempt to regulate the procedure if it's falling within the auspices of medical care and a physician saying that this is necessary for their patient. Um, so part of the reason for this is that we have, you know, this kind of changing geography of medicine and professional medicine that is going on in the 19th century. The way that the law is framed is to basically protect women from from quack doctors and other people who are um, not licensed to practice medicine. We're kind of in the Wild West in the 1850s, 1870s, and we're not really close to any established medical schools uh, here in California. So part of this law is about protecting women from people who are not trained to practice medicine. And then part of the law is also about recognizing that Physicians are experts in their field, and um, they're going to take certain risks for treatment and procedures that they deem necessary. That they think have a better, um, you know, benefit-risk ratio. Uh, so, a physician is not going to perform an abortion unless they think that there's better odds of it, um, you know, being favorable to their patient. Um, and so, so that's part of what that those laws are telling us. So the procedure, again, itself, it's not entirely illegal. Um, The circumstances dictate whether it's legal or not. In 1935, there is a revision to the statute, and it does drop that clause about the physicians. So basically, abortions are illegal unless necessary to protect a woman's life. Um, So left to kind of these most extreme instances, it doesn't kind of leave a carte blanche for any of these physicians. It means that physicians can also be punished if, if, if it's found out that they are performing abortions for other reasons that are not to protect a woman's life. And so that is basically in effect until 1967, uh, 1969, we began to see some revisions uh, in, the case, uh, in the statute. Um, so 1967, we have the Therapeutic Abortion Act um, that is signed into law and it does try to standardize, you know, the reasons for which women can have abortions. And then ultimately in 1969, um, our abortion statutes are found void for vagueness in the state of California.
1: And how does this story, or maybe how do these laws, how do they affect the physicians? And who were the people who were performing abortions during this time? Who are some of the doctors involved in this story, and what are their stories?
0: So it really varies over time, because particularly during the 19th century and in the first part of the 20th century, Most physicians who want to be seen as reputable providers, as good doctors, um, as, you know, hardline AMA, American Medical Association, uh, members, they're vehemently anti-abortion. Again, unless it's the most extreme of circumstances, um, you know, Leslie Reagan in her book, she kind of details this really well, where she talks about how, um, mainline physicians, they kind of use the uh, abortion issue as a platform to align themselves as as professional practitioners of medicine, as a way to kind of separate themselves from people like midwives and other physicians of color in particular, um, by essentially saying that this practice was only done by people, this practice being abortion, was only done by people who were not real doctors that real physicians were protectors of the unborn, and that real physicians would not perform abortions unless, again, it was absolutely necessary. So choice was not really something that was on the table. Physicians really reserved abortion care and treatment for the most severe of instances, and it was something that was frowned upon by the professional medical community writ large. So Physicians who wanted to basically prove that they were real professionals, that they were real doctors, they would be pretty anti abortion. So, um, and at least openly or outwardly anti abortion. Um, There's instances where we see that even some of these hardline anti abortion physicians are sometimes performing these procedures for their private patients, and they're maybe creating a justification for it. Um, but if you wanted to be viewed as a respectable physician, you were hostile to abortion. And so for, for male physicians, this is um, something that, that they're doing. And especially for female physicians, for, for women physicians as well, there is also this additional concern about being viewed as perhaps too friendly with female patients where they might be susceptible to, um, oh, you know, can you please do me a favor and please help me get this abortion? Um, so if female physicians wanted to be respected and not seen as midwives and they wanted to be seen as real physicians as well, then sometimes they were even more staunchly opposed to abortion because of that additional concern, that additional fear of being viewed as less professional or not belonging to the professional class of of physicians. Um, Now, when we're looking at uh, illegal abortions, I tried to use the term providers of illegal abortion whenever possible because it's a little bit broader and I believe that it encapsulates the the variety of, of providers that we do see in abortion. It can be someone with no medical skill. It could be someone with no medical training who believes that this is an opportunity for them to make a lot of money. Um, So it can be someone with no medical skill who is performing these procedures. But providers of illegal abortion could also mean physicians, surgeons, other medical professionals who are providing abortions for perhaps illegal reasons. So whether that is a private patient who they want to continue um, serving, who they want to kind of keep in their good graces. Uh, or it could be a professional, you know, physician, doctor, surgeon who perhaps is manipulated into providing a procedure, or who let their emotions get the best of them and provided the procedure. So saying providers of illegal abortion kind of encapsulates all of those people who. For one reason or another, the abortion that they are providing are providing is illegal, but it doesn't really say anything about the scale of these people, um, and and I think that is sometimes um, important to to mention as well because I think a lot of us have this mental image of illegal abortions as these bloody, botched, terrible procedures that that women go into and you know they they come out dead um when that isn't really the case um illegal abortions in the in the period that i study they can be that they can be fatal they can be provided by people who have no medical skill or training but they also could be provided by physicians who are kind of keeping it hush hush um and who who do have the medical skill and training but who again are just performing it for a reason that that is illegal So in the book, we have this whole spectrum of people. We have people with no medical skill or training like um, Galen Hickok um, in in one of the earliest chapters. Um, We have people like Harley Hedens, who's who's only mentioned briefly with no medical skill or training. But we also have people who are physicians who have gone to medical school, um, who've provided these procedures like Dr. Marmillian, Dr. Fisk. Uh, Traxler, Lanterman, but also people who don't have medical skill or training, but who have specialized and studied abortions and who are quite competent and good at them, um, like Paul de Gaston. So all of those people are are represented in the book, and uh, they're all providing illegal abortions, but they all have varying levels of skill.
1: And in the book, you also make the case and explain how the challenges and the obstacles faced by both people who are seeking abortions and abortion providers, that they're different depending on who you are are. And specifically, black and white medical practitioners and patients in the mid-20th century uh, have to take very different approaches to both uh, uh, finding abortion providers and uh, uh, performing the procedure itself. So can you tell us a bit about, for instance, uh, Dr. Matthew Marmillion, who you mentioned a minute ago, or perhaps Margaret Scott, and what their stories explain about abortion in this period? Sure.
0: So in, in one of the chapters, I, I tried to focus on the experiences of, of Black women who were trying to access illegal abortions and Black physicians and, and other Black providers uh, who were performing these procedures. So Margaret Scott was an 18-year-old Black woman, uh, and she found herself pregnant when she did not want to be and she and her boyfriend approached Dr. Matthew Marmillion about an illegal abortion. So Margaret Scott, um, she and her boyfriend, they lived, uh, probably about 60 miles east of Los Angeles where Dr. Marmillion lived. Uh, Dr. Marmillion was a skilled medical professional. Uh, he was seen as a pillar in his community, a well-respected doctor, um, Margaret Scott she and and her her boyfriend uh, approached him, and it's you know and perhaps I should preface this by saying that when we 're talking about things like um, illegal abortion and we 're looking at the archives, the documents that are there, there are lots of gaps, and so sometimes you 're having to um, make guesses or in my book, I sometimes pose them as questions, you know perhaps they felt this, perhaps they thought this um. And I'm sure that's probably frowned upon by some historians, but I, I don't want to speak for someone when I don't know what they're actually thinking. And, uh, and perhaps it's uh, less professional to interject your own human emotions and things that you might think as a person if you were in that situation. But that is how I approached some of these stories. Um. But they, they approached Dr. Marmelian uh, about an abortion and, you know, reportedly he wasn't really interested in, in doing it, but ultimately, supposedly, um, according to, you know, what is ultimately decided in court and everything, he provided the procedure and she died. Um, there is a little bit of controversy about this particular case because uh, Margaret Scott, um, her, her boyfriend was also um, black as well. Uh, the boyfriend was a medical student, and so, in the court testimony and documents and things like that, there are some um, accusations levied by dr marmillion's team that uh, legal team that her boyfriend had actually performed the abortion and brought her to Dr. Marmillion when um you know he had realized he had botched it, and then that's why she died um but We can also perhaps guess that some of Dr. Marmillian's apprehension about performing the procedure may have also been tied to his um the precariousness of his own position in the medical community at the time. Um, that, you know, particularly in the early 1930s, Los Angeles, um, you know, it was very difficult for black medical professionals to be able to join the Los Angeles County Medical. Association. It was uh, a very difficult relationship between Black physicians and the American Medical Association, which is why they founded the National Medical Association to be a uh, counter to the American Medical Association um, and its essential policy of racial exclusion against Black physicians. And so, if Dr. Marmillion were really concerned about his reputation and being seen as a reputable provider, he uh, and, and female practitioners in medicine as well, they would have been very against performing abortions because of their own um, concern about how they would be viewed and respected within their profession. So, for people like Dr. Marmillion, um, there's really more to lose. They have more at stake if they are found to be providing these procedures, and if there's any kind of legal consequences around it. For it, those challenges would be much more difficult to overcome. Versus, I um, Dr. I compared Dr. Mar- Dr. Marmilian's case to the case of Dr. William Fisk, for example, who was a white provider in Hermosa Beach, and the case with um, Dr. Fisk was actually very similar to the case with Margaret Scott. Um, they both involved 18-year-old, you know, young women. Who had uh, abortions, and both of the young women um, sought the procedures from medical professionals. Both of the young women ended up dying on the operating tables, and both of the physicians went to court Dr. Fisk and Dr. Marmillion. Both Dr. Fisk and Dr. Marmillion were in their early 70s. They were both older gentlemen. I believe they were both 72 at the time. And Dr. Fisk, who was white, um, just got probation and uh, Dr. Marmillion ended up getting sentenced to essentially seven years to life in San Quentin. Um, and, you know, all other details aside, really the only difference between these two cases was Dr. Fisk was white and Dr. Marmillion was black. They were, you know, everything else in this case, in these two cases was almost identical. And, you know, I think there's a couple questions that we can kind of honestly look and reflect on you know was it possible for dr marmilian to get a fair trial with an all white jury in 1930s los angeles um i i don't make the presumption about his guilt or innocence but you know were there did he get a fair trial and if i were to to simply answer that question i don't believe he did and so that you know raises some questions about the proceedings and you know his uh, justice, you know, was justice truly served in Marmillian's case. Um, We see similar things with female providers as well. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, there was this effort to distance um, themselves from midwives. Um, So sometimes female providers were a little bit more staunchly anti-abortion. And again, I think a lot of this has to do with how they felt their, their presence was regarded in professional medicine. That's, um, if they felt like their position was more tenuous, then they might have been more reluctant to perform these procedures.
1: And in the 1930s, uh, uh, you see the formation of an organization, the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring, or PCAR, which becomes a really important player in the story that you tell here. Can you tell us a bit about the history of this group um, and why it becomes so important on the West Coast in the mid-20th century?
0: Yeah. So. This was that that first criminal organization that I found at the end of my first day at the the archives that I that just completely blew my mind. Um, And so the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring ends up taking a really big part of, I think, the middle of the book. And the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring was this multi-state syndicate uh, that was headed by a man named Reginald Rankin. Reginald Rankin is an interesting figure. Um, he, he probably did some shady land speculation dealings and some tax fraud during the great depression. Um, he strikes me as this person that, um, I think we all maybe have a friend or we know of someone that has like a million different hustles going on. They're always trying to make a buck. And the next time you talk to them, they're they're opening another business or they're finding some new pyramid scheme or something to join. Um, he strikes me as one of those figures. And so perhaps, you know, before the real estate bubble and everything collapsed with the Great Depression, that was his way of kind of making his money. And then that ended and uh in 1935 he really begins to put these plans together to create what he hoped would be this this large coastwide syndicate of different physicians who and, and other providers as well not all of them for physicians uh but of different providers who would essentially give women abortions um so I don't know when exactly he started coming up with these ideas, but uh, in 1935, that's when he gets kind of the next guy on board with him. And that's Dr. George Watts. Um, and Dr. George Watts was um, a physician who had been providing abortions for a while and who had done so safely. And so Rankin has, I think, the the business acumen. He has the the plan um he has the perhaps knowledge of you know who to get involved in law enforcement to maybe bribe or to kind of get them to turn their head the other way but George Watts is the person who has the medical specialty and so Rankin knows that since Watts has been able to provide abortions for 40 years without you know getting arrested or anything like that that he's really the person that he needs to get on board with this. And if he gets him, then everything can kind of fall into place. So Watts does um, join him. And together, they basically end up recruiting about 30 other providers of abortions. um, And they headquartered them in in Los Angeles. Uh, But they have clinics in California, Washington, and Oregon, uh, all along the Pacific Coast. They set up these doctor's offices. They move their providers around. So if they... Um, you know, approach a, a provider of abortion, say in Portland, and they say, hey, do you want to join our ring? We promise, you know, you'll have a minimum salary of this much. We will find people for you. You'll make a lot of money. And if this doctor or provider in Portland says, sure, then Rankin might have him move to San Jose or uh, San Francisco, some other place to kind of Maybe unsettle him, but put him in a different clinic where he doesn't feel like he has ownership or control. Um, so he shuffled his his providers around a little bit and put them in different posts from where they came from. Um, and all of these people basically are providing abortions. that is the only thing that they are doing in these clinics. Uh, Rankin has a group of young women and pharmacists who he calls steerers. So they're recruiting people, they're finding people. The young women might walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard and if they approach or see other young women say, hey, you know, if you have a friend who's in trouble, um, just tell her to go to this office and they'll take care of her. And the pharmacists, you know, uh, say a young couple comes to the pharmacist and asks if there's anything that could help them instead of offering a drug for sale. The pharmacist might say, oh, just go to this clinic and they'll take care of you. So there's all of these layers and all of these different people who are part of the Pacific Coast abortion ring. But at the end of the day, there's about 30 people who are actually providing the procedures. And these people all are trained under Dr. Watts. Uh, He makes sure that everyone understands how to do the procedures. Um, He shows them how to perform the procedures safely. Watts had kind of come up with this uh, thing that was called a a vacuum aspirator. Uh, And it was basically this kind of suction device to help ensure that all of the fetal material had been removed from the uterus. So it starkly minimized the rate of infections. And so it helped a lot of these procedures be really safe. And after everyone received their training from Dr. Watts and he kind of signed off and said, okay, you've practiced enough, you're good to go. Um, then they were sent off to to their clinics. And what was so striking to me is this this ring is only in operation really for, you know, from 35 to 37, but it's not fully 35. It's not full of 37. I've, they've maybe got like a year and a half, a year and eight months that they're really in in full-blown operation. But they're making the modern day equivalent of millions of dollars per month. And that's all they're doing is they are just providing abortions. And so they had clinics in in basically every, every major city in California, Washington, and Oregon. Um, they had a, a sliding scale for pay depending on how far along in the pregnancy the, the women were. Um, and everything was done, you know, really clean and hygienic. I found no evidence of any fatalities um, in the course of of their providing abortions. Um, and, and I come back to this idea of, of Rankin being an interesting figure because you can't really put your finger on him. Um, yes, there were no fatalities that I found, but he does, you know, intimidate witnesses, right? There was one young woman who, she didn't die, but she did have to be hospitalized after her abortion. And so he shows up at her you know, hospital bed. And he basically says, you know, what's it going to cost to shut you up? And her mom says, well, you know, her medical bills are this much money. Um, And then he Western unions the physician and has her emergency care paid for. And, you know, in, in other instances, right, he was trying to get this other doctor to join the syndicate. And the doctor didn't want to join, and so he kidnapped the doctor's secretary for uh, a couple hours. So he is one of these people where, on one hand, he's creating an apparatus to provide women with safe abortions uh, at a time when they're illegal, and on the other hand, he's he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> but uh, it's it's really difficult to to try to really describe him in in full terms.
1: And after the dissolution of the PCAR, um, the Mexico California border begins to take on a new meaning which kind of circles us back to where we started the conversation today. And the border takes on more importance after this era and prior to 1969, and especially prior to the 73 Roe v. Wade decision. So let's bring it back to the border a bit. Why and how did the border start to provide an opportunity for women seeking abortions in the 1950s and 1960s? And what dangers did they face in seeking what came to be called Tijuana abortions?
0: Yeah. So the border plays a really important role. Now, um, there were women who did cross the border for abortions in the 30s um, and 40s. I did find evidence of that, but we don't have this kind of massive movement or or the proliferation of this massive black market really until the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, prior to to that, there were Options, and, and I guess it's really more about options for women of means to go to other countries where abortions were legal or more accessible. Um, but those options weren't really available to your average woman, right? If we're talking about going to another country where abortions are legal, we're talking about other women going to Japan or Sweden. And all of the costs that are involved with that, it, it essentially closes off legal abortion to, um, to a lot of women. Um, and some women who even went to you know Mexico City to find the services of a uh, of an OBGYN there who might be willing to to provide them with the procedure if they were um, provided enough funds so the there were women who who crossed national boundaries uh who went to other countries before the fifties and sixties to access abortions um but were talking mostly about women of means in those instances. Now, after the Pacific Coast abortion ring is dissolved, what's really interesting about this particular case is that from what I saw, it was one of the biggest cases where the providers of illegal abortions were put in prison without a woman dying. Now, before this, most of the other cases, that involve successful convictions um, involved a woman dying or at least becoming incredibly ill, and part of that has to do with some of the um, with some of the the legal requirements for um, convicting someone. So there had to be proof of pregnancy. There had to be proof that um, something was done to terminate that pregnancy. And if you have a woman who receives an illegal abortion and she's perfectly fine, she's probably not going to say anything about it. Um, and you can't really prove that there was a pregnancy before that, or that the the pregnancy was terminated for the wrong reason. But if there is an autopsy, right? Sometimes those questions can can be answered there. So mostly before the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring, the only successful convictions that we see of abortion providers. Uh, involve fatalities, and um, it's typically easier for for people to be brought to trial if they are not physicians as well. Uh, And we have, you know, those things that are going on with the Pacific Coast abortion ring. You have people who are providing them who are not physicians, um, and you don't have have people dying. So the thing that brings down the Pacific Coast abortion ring is just this mountain of evidence um, that you know, you have patient cards, you have all of this other information that is essentially saying and spelling out what these people are doing. So I argue in the book that in California, this is a sea change in that it means that there is a lower standard of evidence that is necessary to convict providers of illegal abortions. You don't need women to die anymore. Um, But if After this, we start moving most abortions to hospitals, Um, then there's no reason for a private clinic or anything to have speculums or these um, catheters for the section that that Watts was using. There's no reason for any of those things to be in private physicians' offices. So there's a few things going on. Um, There's this kind of change in what we're able to prosecute and convict based on. Uh, there is this kind of general movement of labor and delivery to the hospital that is taking place in the 1930s uh, throughout the country as well. Um, And with that labor and delivery moving to the hospital, abortion is moving into the hospital as well. So for women who want abortions after the Pacific Coast abortion ring, it's most likely going to be in a hospital setting, which means there's more oversight. There's You know, now you're dealing with hospital administrators, now you're dealing with therapeutic abortion committees, now you're dealing with hospital lawyers, all of these people who are invested in limiting their own liability. Um, And so this means that for many women, if they're trying to access a legal abortion, it's much more challenging. You have all of these kind of bureaucratic arms that are governing over this procedure when it used to just be something that was limited to the physician and the patient. So as legal abortions become more challenging already to access, you have people who begin to kind of look towards the border. Um, the other thing that kind of affects this as well is, you know, greater access to roads, cars, tourism, um the the creation of a vice industry in the Prohibition era for Americans to enjoy drinking uh, on the border. All of these kind of coalesce together to form the foundation wherein illegal abortions in the border space are able to to emerge. So uh, there's another case that I I focus on in the early 1950s, uh, and it actually involves Reginald Rankin again. And this is the Buffum case. And in the Buffum case, Reginald Rankin decides to uh, basically just have a front in Long Beach, California, where he sets up procedures for women, but the actual procedures are done in Tijuana. And he uh, he's arrested again, convicted uh, of violating California's abortion statute, but. He and Roy L. Bethem, who was the, I guess, co-conspirator in this, uh, they were able to successfully appeal their case because, um, I, I like to call it a legal technicality, but it's much bigger than that, in the sense that um, the California court recognized the limits of its power. They could not convict two men of violating a California law if the actual violation took place in Mexico. And you couldn't have a California court convict these two men of violating Mexican law because also it was illegal in Mexico as well. And so it looks like uh, Rankin and Buffum won their appeal. It looks like they found this legal loophole that allowed them to kind of exploit the proximity um, that they had to the border. And so I argue that it's after this this Buffum decision um, the cases people v. Buffum, Reginald Rankin is, is not listed in the, the case name. Um, it appears that after the Buffum case, then this loophole is exposed. And with that, you have the development of this kind of border tourism abortion industry that emerges on the border. And it means that you don't need to have a lot of wealth. Or, or means to be able to, to go here, right? If you're a college woman in Southern California or even Northern California, uh, you can take care of this in a day trip or a weekend. Um, you can go find a provider. All you have to do is cross the border and you can blend in with these other Americans who are taking advantage of this border space as a place to indulge in their illicit desires, um, you can blend in and pretend you're going to a bar or that you're going to a show or a horse race or something. Um, and you can sit in and no one knows that you're there for an illegal abortion. And so abortion providers on the border become more visible after this Betham case um, in 1953. And what it means is that illegal abortions then become more accessible to um Two women who live across the border, who live in the southwest or in these border spaces, they're easier to get. They don't require a a plane ticket. They don't necessarily require an overnight stay, Um, and you can blend in with with other Americans who are crossing the border every day, every weekend for fun that you can't indulge in in the United States. Now, what this means is a few things. You can have instances where there are really great providers who are doing safe and clinical work on the border, um, but you can have the other extreme as well. And so um, one of the the providers that I, I believe I mentioned him very briefly, but uh, Dr. Alfonso Paris, he was uh, one of these Tijuana doctors, but all of the investigative files in the California State Archives talk about how sterile his facility was, how everything smelled of bleach, how he um, you know, gave women pain relievers before and antibiotics after, and so he was uh, what they regarded as a very skilled practitioner, and he was very safe and, and clean at what he did. Um, so he uh, probably charged a little bit more, but he did very safe clinical work. Um, But you could also have instances where you have women who are perhaps desperate, who don't know who to talk to, they're navigating a foreign country, they don't know the language, and they simply accept the services of the first person that they find. And this could be detrimental. It could mean that they, um, you know, they find someone who isn't as skilled, they find someone who isn't as hygienic, and it means that they're not getting the best quality of care. And when you're dealing with a black market right it's it's often depends on on cost and what you're willing to afford and what you can afford and so this often meant that the women who had the least amount amount of money to offer for the procedures were dealt the cheapest hand uh, and they may not have gotten the best treatment that was available um and and the women who had more money to offer they probably got better treatment. Now, these poor uh, women or these women who, who had less money, they didn't necessarily die. Um, you know, It just meant that perhaps the procedures were not safe, hygienic. Maybe they didn't get pain relievers. Maybe they didn't get antibiotics. Uh, it could also mean that they didn't get complete abortions, that perhaps the provider just um, kind of started the miscarry process um, to the point where When these women returned back to the United States, they would have to go to an emergency room where a doctor there would then complete the abortion. And there were instances when women did die, uh, like Eleanor McDonald. It was not performed um, safely, it was not performed hygienically. In the case of Eleanor McDonald, it was not uh, a complete abortion and she began to develop a sepsis fever um, and she ended up dying very soon thereafter because the procedure was not uh, complete. So there is this um, spectrum of of what kind of quality women were getting, but overwhelmingly, people heard the horror stories, right? When we're talking about illegal abortion, we're not talking in the media, in the newspapers, in in the court proceedings. About the successful ones, we're talking about the ones that turned fatal overwhelmingly, with the exception of the Pacific Coast abortion rate and so it's those stories that become most well known um It's those stories that end up kind of defining in the public imaginary what Tijuana abortions are and Tijuana abortions is kind of this uh, umbrella term that gets used to describe all abortions on the border, even if they're not actually performed in Tijuana. Um, but but those are the stories that that kind of get spread and shared. Those are the um, the stories that proliferate that end up framing in other people's minds what it means for women who have their abortions in the
1: border. And as we begin to to wrap up here, um, I want to bring this story up to the present a bit. Um, obviously, with the recent uh, Supreme Court decision, the Dobbs case, the, the status of abortion in the United States has been very much thrown into question. And I always hesitate to ask historians questions that are you know sort of predicting the future. That's not really our job. But nonetheless, I'm curious, how do you foresee this decision changing the dynamics surrounding abortion in California and maybe the West more broadly. Uh, do you maybe think that mobility will once again become really centrally important for women seeking to have an abortion?
0: Absolutely. I think mobility um, will be one of the defining factors of, of how um, how well women are able to access these procedures. Um With the Dobbs case, right, I think a lot of states are going to continue on the trajectories that they've been in in the last 10 years or so, which is either enshrining and protecting abortion rights in their state laws and state constitutions or uh, restricting abortion rights in their states. Um, And so we're going to see states essentially take these two divergent paths. And so without any kind of federal protection for abortion, we're going to see a patchwork of different abortion laws throughout the country. and so, this means that for some women, they will be able to go to places like California, where I am, where um, abortion is legal and protected. Um, or, you know, if they don't have the means, they're essentially stuck. I think uh, it's also important to consider the ways that technology has also changed the abortion debate as well. In the period that I study, we're talking about surgical abortion. When today, approximately 90% of abortions that take place are medicated. They uh, do not involve any kind of surgical procedure at all. So it's really much more about access to these drugs that can medically induce an abortion. Um, and so I think with that, there is the um, the possibility that we'll see fewer of these kind of back alley um, you know, abortions, we'll see fewer of these kind of women who um, are are hurt in the ways that we saw in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But I think we will still see that unfortunately reflected mostly in the in women who don't have means, who were not able to get the drugs, who were not able to travel to another state. Um, so while I believe there will be fewer of those instances of you know, botched procedures, these kind of horror stories, um, I think we'll see them primarily in the women with the least amount of resources uh, and means to access these other options that, that exist. Um, one of the things that, you know, after the Buffon decision, there were attempts to try to um, change the laws to, to um, prevent women from crossing state lines, from nat- uh, crossing the national border. Uh, attempts to invoke the Mann Act to um, try to prevent these from taking place, but those didn't end up working. Um, I think there might be attempts at, you know, limiting or restricting uh, mailing these abortion drugs uh, across certain state lines. Um, How well that will work, I don't know. Um, But I also struggle with um, some of the language of these new laws because in my own research, you know, I've seen various versions of these different statutes and I've seen various questions that have been presented before the court of, you know, what does it mean to have a fetal anomaly or how do we define gestational age when there's no clear formula for that and you can be off by a couple of days and if 11 days off is the difference between an abortion being legal or illegal, if something is 15 weeks or 12 weeks, um, you know, how are we defining all of those things? And so when we approached those questions in California in the 60s, uh, particularly in the Bellis case in 1969, we ultimately said that our statutes were void for vagueness because a reasonable person, a reasonable physician, would not know whether the abortion that they are about to provide is legal or illegal based on the way that the law is written. And I think we're seeing that we've seen that already in cases where women in some of these states that have tried to ban abortion are are in the process of miscarrying, and it's doctors who are waiting until the very last minute before they're intervening because they don't want to face legal consequences, uh, or you have hospital administrators who are you know making these women wait until the very last minute until. The possibility of death has increased to the point that they feel comfortable with intervening and performing the the, the necessary abortion. Um, I also, I think it's important that you know we're using the correct language uh, to to discuss some of these things because too often I think people think of abortion as something that's done electively when you know the medical terms for these procedures. Don't necessarily distinguish between that element of choice, and so if we're just outlawing abortions, um, you know, terminations of pregnancies, that that still encompasses those procedures that are necessary after, you know, a fetus is no longer viable. It it, it is an abortion that you perform when you have an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, The medical field does not make those distinctions, and so when we have people who are not um, maybe familiar with the medical language as much, making those laws, it makes it much more challenging for providers in that space to to be able to do their jobs effectively and to be able to care for their patients.
1: And as we begin to wrap up here, uh, I always like to ask my guests uh, a question toward the end that puts them in the position of someone reading their book so if you put yourself in the shoes of a reader of this book and imagine maybe a year or a couple years down the line what would you hope they remember for from your book or maybe another way to put it is what's one takeaway that you hope readers get from your book uh thinking back on it uh, uh something that might stick with them or an overall pointer message that you hope they remember
0: well i hope the readers would um would recognize that that laws criminalizing abortion don't stop them from taking place. Um, but I also hope that from the way that I've written the book and the sources that I use, that, that people recognize that, that the women who undergo these procedures, they do so after deliberation. They do so after consulting with their partners. Um, these aren't careless decisions that they are making overwhelmingly. And I would hope that um, that people would be more empathetic and, and listen to others, even if their uh, opinion is, is slightly different on the, the issue of abortion.
1: And then finally, I'm curious what you've been working on in the interim. This book came out a couple years ago, um, and I know that it, it emerged from your dissertation. What have you been working on as your next project? Can we get a preview?
0: Uh, Yeah, so uh, there were some COVID delays, uh, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of research trips that were canceled, but Mm -hmm. I'm finally working on that project that I thought was going to be my dissertation, which is looking at the experiences of physicians of color in Southern California in the interwar years. And uh, I'm doing this by starting with um, the experiences of Dr. Edna Griffin. She was the first Black woman who was a physician in Pasadena, California. And kind of starting with her, um, it's not a biography, um, but using little vignettes from her life to kind of explain and show uh, the different ways that, that race and, and segregation affected her ability as a Black woman to provide medical care for her patients, but also how her patients um, were also um, kind of caught in this limbo because of their own race and the ability to access certain medical institutions as well. So it's a story about professional medicine in Southern California. I think it was initially going to be the interwar years, but now it's looking like a little bit longer than that. Uh, Maybe it might go up to the 1950s or so. Um, But I I just had a research fellowship last month and I got a lot of stuff down. So I'm, I'm excited to start writing again
1: that sounds excellent and uh, when the book is finished we'll have to have you back on the show it sounds like a great project I look forward to reading it and I
0: I hope to finish it sometime before seven years from now
1: (laughs) (laughs) but you know but but no rush either way and if not that's perfectly okay good work takes time
0: I will see you in seven years
1: (laughs) sounds good Alicia Gutierrez Romine is an associate professor of history at La Sierra University, and her newest book is From the Back Alley to the Border, Criminal Abortion in California, 1920 to 1969, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2020. Thank you once again for joining me today, Alicia. Thank
0: you for having me.